Um, today, we're going to be in the book of 1 Timothy. I'd like to encourage you to turn there in your own copy of Scriptures to chapter 3. And we're going to begin today in verse 1. Several years ago, I saw a video, and this was before everybody started doing interviews from their computer. It was an interview through a screen that was given to many people. Now, this was a, uh, a, uh, an interview that was published. It was a false interview. It was for a fake position, but they published it in very many different outlets, and they invited people to come and take a look at what they had to offer as a job. And they began explaining the job, and they said, this job is literally a 24-7 job. You are on call at all times of the day. You will be responsible for making meals for the client. You will be responsible for taking care of whatever needs the client has at any time. And most likely, you're going to be on your feet between 18 and 20 hours a day. Um, there are no breaks of any kind. There are no bathroom breaks. There are no... And then they just kept going on and on and on. And people were... You could see their faces just starting to say, I'm out. Like, there's no way I'm doing this job. Absolutely not. And they started asking questions like, is that even legal to do this? And they said, do you realize what position this is? And it was a Mother's Day video. And they said, that's what your mom has done for you your whole life. And it was a clever, interesting, funny video, but the point is that whatever the requirements are that are given in a job interview tell you quite a bit about the job itself. When you listen to what somebody must have or must be or must do in order to be in this role, then you learn about what the expectations are for that position. Here today, we are going to consider the requirements for somebody to be an elder within the church, somebody to be a pastor, somebody to be a shepherd of the flock. According to 1 Timothy chapter 3, it says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Let me pray for us. Father God, today as we come together to hear your word, Lord, I pray that as we consider the qualifications of an elder, that you would give us wisdom to hear and to understand and to put into practice what you are teaching us through your word today. We ask that your Holy Spirit would actively be applying these things to us so that we understand and that we carry out your will. And God, today I pray that this information, this teaching, would be a time of genuine worship. Lord, we are thankful for how you set up your church. We are thankful that you have designed your kingdom to operate in this way. And Lord, we pray that you would please help us to obey you in these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It can be very tempting to begin to view the church as a business. And sometimes, if you've ever been in a church that does view their church as a business, it becomes noticeable. And the thing is, in some ways, there are similarities. Both of them have bank accounts. Both of them have to understand their finances. Both of them have to deal with the government. But the distinctions between a church and a business could not be more pronounced. 
The church is not a money-making endeavor. The church is not selling a product. The church is not primarily focused on temporary or earthly gains. The church is not a capitalist enterprise. And church leadership is not like that of the world either. Certainly, our focus today is on the criterion upon which a church member is chosen to then become a church elder, but that position is not based on skill. It is not a position that is a popularity contest where someone is given this job, this role, this opportunity because they are the most likable. It's not based on intelligence or upon experience or education level or eloquence. Elders are not selected because of their age or their appearance. And I'm really thankful for that. What is required in order to be an elder is a combination of gifting and character. And in our text today, I just read 13 virtues and one gift that must be in place in order for somebody to be confirmed as an elder. But consider what that means. 13 of these things that I just listed are character qualities, meaning that these are forms of life that every single Christian should strive to carry out. That means there is not a single redeemed person in the hearing of my voice who should not strive to enact these things in their own lives. Secondly, the fact that these are character qualities means that they are areas that people have to grow into. As we learned a couple of weeks ago, elders are not called elders because they are old. Timothy was not old. They are called elders because they have accumulated wisdom and they live by it and they desire to share it. But every wise man was once a fool. And every church leader is still a sinner who is constantly in need of God's grace. There is only one person who perfectly exemplifies all of the qualities to lead the church. There is only one person who was never a fool, and thankfully that person is the one who rules and reigns over his church today, and that is Jesus Christ. When selecting an elder, you are essentially saying, that is a guy that I believe loves Jesus to such an extent that it has changed his life in all of the ways listed in these verses, and I want to imitate him as he imitates Christ. I want to submit myself to his leadership and his teaching because I believe that he understands God's will and he is following God's will. Now, we do this so that we might have a place where the gospel can be taught accurately and so that the people of God might flourish. And as a congregation, there are many things that you vote on. You vote on budgets, you vote on staff, you vote on boiler replacements, etc. But the two most important things that you cast a vote for in our members' meetings are the people that will be fellow members and the people that will be your leaders. When you vote someone into membership, you are covenanting with them and locking arms with them and saying, I believe this person is a follower of Christ and I commit myself to them, to serve them, and to walk with them, and to help them move towards heaven. And I commit them to me. I will submit myself to them in accountability so that they have right now to watch over my life as well. When you vote on members, that is what you are doing. However, when you vote someone into leadership, you are putting much of the direction of the church into that person's hands. Think of the future. Where do you want this church to be a hundred years from now? Where do you want it to be doctrinally? Where do you want it to be culturally? You want it to be exactly as the scripture teaches it to be, meaning that you need to put people into place who will guard and protect. And that word shepherd literally means to fight against wolves when necessary. 
Many books of the New Testament speak to the danger of false teachers. These are men, and now in our day, also women, who lead churches far away from the Lord. Last week, Mike Neglia actually briefly mentioned one example of this from Revelation chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. It says, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, do you see the damage that false teaching has done to this local church? Do you see what Jesus says? It was, not there because, it was not because of their practical difficulties here on earth. He's not just saying, look, this guy's not real smart with money and he kind of messed up the finances of the church. No, these are false beliefs that were being taught and believed. And they were so offensive to Jesus that he promised to come and wage war against the church if they did not repent. That is incredibly strong language. The book of the Bible that has the most concise message against false teachers is the book of Jude. And in that book, we learn to watch out for, uh, we learn to watch out for, and we learn also how to guard against false teachers who are rising to prominence within the church. Speaking of these false teachers, Jude writes the following in the fourth verse of his epistle. He says, certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. He goes on to explain all these various forms of how the false teachers have functionally damaged them and were seeking to destroy them. Earlier we read, uh, actually Jordan read very well from part of Jude to teach us what some of those false teachers were doing and how to avoid them. Notice that these people who crept in they did so unnoticed. I like how the New King James puts it, unawares. They were incognito. Nobody noticed what they were doing. So they came in, and they gained a prominent voice with no opposition. But the people should have been able to spot them. Why? Because it says they were perverting the grace of God into sensuality. How do we guard against having a false teacher step into leadership? If I get hit by a bus... You need to know how to ensure the next person who is standing here is not going to be a false teacher. How do you do that? You do that to, by re, uh, considering the requirements we are reading today, and you do this by walking through this criteria and observing the life of these individuals. Now, today we have 14 things in this chapter that we are looking at, and we're going to have to move through them relatively quickly, so I would say just buckle up because we are going to fly through these requirements for pastors. First, it says that an elder must be above reproach. Now, what exactly does that mean? I think a good way to think of this is consider Daniel. Look back to Daniel chapter 6. You don't have to turn there. It'll be here on the screen for you. Remember Daniel chapter 6 when his jealous colleagues were seeking to have him removed from office. So what did they do? They conspired against him. And they dug through his life and through every closet for any skeleton they could find for cause for mutiny. And here's what they found, according to Daniel chapter 6, verse 4. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault, because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Again, no Christian is perfect. 
every single one of you, if you are unable to point out a sin issue that you have had to repent of in your own life, that is a problem. You are a sinner in need of grace daily. It is not saying that Daniel was perfect. It is not saying that elders must be perfect. But it is saying that those who are set apart to lead should be without scandal. According to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 7, Timothy was actually supposed to teach the entire church to live above reproach. He was called to teach every one of us. It says, command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. A leader cannot lead the church toward holiness, though, if they themselves are not pursuing holiness. The second thing that we see here as a requirement for an elder is that they must be the husband of one wife. Now, we've hammered this from a lot of angles over the last couple of weeks, and we've done so in large part because it speaks to the fact that those who serve as elders must be men. But I also want you to see that it does not say that they must be married in order to be an elder. It does require that a man who serves as an elder is, however, if married, committed to his own wife. Tim Challies explains this really well this way. He says, The phrase, the husband of one wife, is meant to be a positive statement that expresses faithful, monogamous marriage. In English, we would say, faithful and true to one woman or a one-woman man. Now, it's important to understand that although official polygamy was looked down upon and even in some cases litigated in the Roman Empire, there are many things that were commonly practiced in their day that we would consider adjacent to polygamy, that they were breaking families apart. And we would say that it would delegitimize somebody from this office. For example, wealthy men in the Roman Empire often had concubines. These were women who were wives in all but legal uh, capacity. Also, it was legal for Roman citizens to have relationships with their female slaves. And because it was legal and practically expected, it was very common. Also, prostitution was not only practiced in their day, prostitution was actually required in some forms of worship for the pagan gods. These are probably some of the practices that Paul had in mind here. Philip Ryken says, He wants the leaders of the church to be a living example of biblical marriage, one man and one woman in a love covenant for life. One of the big questions that churches have to answer is whether or not this disqualifies men who have been divorced or divorced and remarried. Now, I personally do not believe that divorced or divorce and remarriage is necessarily a deal breaker when it comes to being an elder. Let's just consider a few things the Bible has to say on divorce and remarriage, and then I'll make a simple case. First, marriage is always designed to display the gospel. According to Ephesians chapter 5, God created marriage so that every single legitimate marriage throughout history has been a picture of Christ and the church. Whether people understand that or observe that or were even aware of that or not, it is always true. In fact, Paul says this has been a mystery up until now. So all of those marriages from Adam and Eve forward that took place between them and Paul, those were all mysteriously still a picture of the gospel. And not only that, what God has joined together, no man should tear apart, according to Jesus in Mark 10. The second thing to consider is that divorce is never a good thing. But in certain cases, it is a permitted thing. In the case of infidelity or abandonment, God has permitted believers to be divorced. The third thing to consider is that I I don't believe that remarriage after divorce is sinful. In fact, it is clearly permitted by God in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. And in that instance, we see that God acknowledges and permits that if a woman is divorced by her husband, she may then go and marry another man. Now, 
I would say this is never ideal and it is never good, but if God permits it within the old covenant, I do believe he permits it within the new. The fourth thing to consider is that if someone is divorced and remarriage, remarried, it would be a sin to get a second divorce. So if somebody is remarried and you said to them, I do not believe in divorce and remarriage, it would still be sinful for them to break the covenant with the second partner they have married. Fifth, many people were divorced and remarried before they were saved. And in most cases, these processes are filled with sin, absolutely. However, even if someone does believe it's a sin for somebody to get remarried, it would then be the only sin, the only sin, that someone could commit before salvation that would then exclude them from leadership in the church. There is nothing else that a person could do before coming to Christ, according to the Scripture, that would then eliminate them from the possibility of being a pastor. Their sins have been wiped away, and they are made new. So I would say that in unique circumstances, I do believe that it is possible for someone to be a one-woman man who has come through a divorce and into a second marriage. However, that being said, I also believe that in many cases, somebody who has been divorced and remarried should not serve as an elder, particularly if that remarriage is recent. Andreas Kostenberger explains it this way in his commentary. He says, in, conjunct- in conjunction with the requirement that overseers be above reproach, which includes community reputation, it may often be preferable not to appoint divorcees to the role of an overseer, especially when other qualified candidates are available that have not been divorced. It's not a way to lower or consider lightly or lowly those people who have been. It does not make them second-class citizens. What it does is it ensures that there is a high view of marriage within the family of God. The third thing that we see here regarding an elder and their requirements is that an elder must be sober-minded. Some translations use the word that they must be temperate or have temperance. Typically, when you hear the word sober, what does that word get use in reference to? What are they speaking about if they say they are sober? Alcohol, drinking, that's exactly right. And generally speaking, that is what we mean when we use the word sober. Generally speaking, that is not what the Bible means when it uses the word sober. However, there is a reason this word has a correlation. It is used because these things actually have an interesting parallel. What does alcohol do to a person? It deadens your ability to reason. It makes you volatile. It causes you to respond out of emotion rather than thoughtfully taking into account your situation. An elder must be temperate. They must be sober-minded. They must be able to handle various trials and conflicts and insults without allowing their feelings to dictate the responses or attitudes. Being sober-minded is the internal aspect of our character that is displayed then by what we see next in self-control. Self-control is observable from the outside. Being sober-minded is the first step of that which begins on the inside. The battle against sin begins in the mind. And if you can respond in a Christ-like way in the mind, then you will control yourself externally. Which brings us to our fourth thing that must be required for those who are elders. They must be self-controlled. Phil Riken speaks about this less in terms of what we usually consider self-control, like outbursts of anger or aggression or violence. Those things are actually mentioned later on in this list. 
Instead, most likely what this is talking about is controlling one's appetites. Although this can speak of physical appetites for food, it is actually a reference to appetites for sin of all kinds. Those who seek to lead the church of God must learn to say no to self and yes to God. It means that they are not extravagant in any way of their life that would cause them to be less than a leader in the church. The fifth thing that we see here for an elder is that they must be respectable. This word is interesting because it's actually the same word that we saw back in chapter 2 that was translated in our English Bible as the word modest. Remember when we learned that women are to dress modestly when they come to church? This is the same word, that they must be respectable apparel when they come to church. And it says of men who are going to lead, they must be the same word, respectable. Think of it this way. You are able to give respect to any person in the world. In fact, you should lovingly and graciously display with all of your capacities through the way that you talk to people and speak about people and listen to people and respond to people. You should show respect for people because they are God's creation. But there are some people that you don't have to try very hard to respect. Why not? Because the manner of their life makes you think highly of them. You see them, you see their way of life, you see how they operate, and you say, wow, that person seems like they have things put together. That person seems like their conduct is good. And the people of the church can gather around and say, I hold this person in high respect. The sixth thing that an elder must be is hospitable. Now, hospitable is a really cool word in Greek. Now, I know that I talk a lot about Greek words, and some people are like, I don't know Greek. Well, this one I think you know. There are two words that you are familiar with. These two words are the combination of philo and xenon. It combines these two familiar words. Philo is the word for kindness or love. Now, you know, of course, Philadelphia. That word philo is that word for love at the beginning, the city of brotherly love. Although if there's one city in America I would consider not a place of brotherly love, it might be Philadelphia. Philo means love or kindness. And the other word is the word xenon. Now, this word has become more familiar to us probably lately. In our modern American language, the word xenophobia has become much more common. The fear of outsiders, the fear of strangers. Well, here the word xenon, outsider or stranger, is being used in combination with love. Or or basically saying you should show kindness to strangers or show love towards outsiders. Those who are elected to serve as elders need to be men who display this kind of love for people that they are not required to give of themselves to. Who am I required to feed? My family. The Bible tells me I must do that. If I do not do that, I am worse than an infidel. I'm not required to feed my neighbor. I don't ever have to do that. But if I invite them over for a meal, I am being hospitable. I'm going beyond the bounds of my requirements and using the things God has given to me so that I might serve and love and be hospitable towards a stranger or an outsider. This is usually tied in the Bible to how somebody uses their home. Consider a few of the ways this is commanded in Scripture. Romans 12, 13 says, To all of the Christians in Rome, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Peter also tells us what our attitude should be when showing this hospitality in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9, when he says, show hospitality to one another, how? Without grumbling. Did you notice something really interesting in these two passages? 
I hope you did. I hope you saw that both of these things speak of showing hospitality to one another within your own church. Peter and Paul are not here just speaking about travelers who have come to your town and said, I need a place to stay. And you say, okay, well, come and stay at my house. He's talking about serving one another within the congregation with simple and practical needs that you are able to provide through the use of your God-given resources, including your home. One interesting way to see how this was lived out in the early church is to read some of the early church documents that were produced during the early church period. One book called The Shepherd of Hermas, written by a man named Clement, was written in the late first century. This is probably written about 30 years after the book of 1 Timothy was written. How did this guy, Clement, write about what it looked like to be an elder during this time? Here he's going to use the word bishop. He states that bishops were hospitable men who were always glad to welcome God's servants into their homes without hypocrisy. Now notice, he's talking about Christian. That word, God's servants, is showing that they are welcoming God's servants, his people, Christians, into their homes without hypocrisy, and the bishops always sheltered the needy and widows through their ministry without ceasing. That's an incredible statement. That is the heart that Timothy is telling us bishops should have, elders should have, pastors should have. They should be willing to use their homes or whatever else God has given them to assist those who are in need. There are many pastors who never open their homes. There are many people that I've spoken to who have gone to churches their entire lives and have never once been in the pastor's house. There are churches where no member of the congregation has ever seen inside of the parsonage. I know of a church in particular in the New York metro area where there was a pastor who served there for over 20 years, and this pastor had lived in the parsonage, and when he was ready to retire, they said, well, we don't even know what to do. No, and, and, and there were some questions that were asked about, well, hasn't anyone ever gone in to fix anything for the pastor? And they said, oh, no, no. He would always hire somebody from the outside because he did not want anyone from the church coming into his home. Elders should be the kind of men who, within their ability to do so, serve the body of Christ with the things that they own, including their home. I want you to come to my home. I want you to know how we live. I want you to see us for who we are, and I want to, as much as possible, serve you. Now, I'm not setting myself up as a paragon of virtue here, but what I am saying is anybody who comes into the role of elder should be the type of person that is willing to have you come to their home and is willing to serve you in whatever way they can. There are some unique circumstances in which people may not own their own home, They might not be able to have a gathering at their local place, but it does mean that they would still be able to gather with you and meet with you and within the realms of their possibility, maybe take you out for a coffee or donut so they can share with you with what they have. The seventh thing that we see is that elders must be able to teach. Now, this is the only time in the entire list that we are going to see something that is not a character quality, but instead a gift. This is something that they cannot produce on their own. God must give this gift to them. By using this concept of gifting throughout Paul's writing, he talks about being able to speak is different than being able to teach the Word of God. This is clearly not a reference to eloquence. Paul does not hold eloquence in high esteem, which is great for me because already in this sermon, I've probably stumbled a hundred times. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, 
lest the cross, be em- uh, cross of Christ be emptied of its power. In other words, what he's saying here is, I didn't come to show off my skills. Because if I'm showing off with how great a speaker I am, I'm actually taking your attention away from Jesus. And I don't ever want to do that. I want you to see past me and see to him. The requirement of being able to teach presupposes that an elder candidate will be well-versed in the Bible. You can never teach something that you don't know. One of the interesting things, I, this is not in my notes, just a side note that comes to mind. Several years ago, I used to watch the History Channel, and I love history, and I began to see a shift away from like actually educational television to more of like infotainment, as they call it. And what I started to do every once in a while was looking up the experts that they had on the History Channel. And I realized that I actually have more education in history than most of them did. And I was like, why am I watching this person who clearly has no idea what they're talking about just because they're on television? You don't have to know to speak in our public world anymore. But to be an elder in the church, to be a pastor of a church, you need to know the Bible. It presupposes that you are able to explain, or as we're going to see later in 1 Timothy, the word rightly divide. You, you cut a straight path for the people through the word so you can show them what God is actually saying. There are many times where people ask questions that are difficult and need to know the answer from Scripture. How then shall I live? And an elder must know the word and be able to explain that word to others. It means that they keep a close watch over the words that they use to describe the Scriptures so that those who are teaching do not unintentionally mislead. Now, let me say something. I, I like speaking without notes. I actually prefer speaking without notes. I like just to look at your faces and to say whatever is coming to my mind, and I would prefer to speak without notes, except for the fact that when I speak without notes, I sometimes unintentionally say the wrong thing and make a big error in what I'm presenting to you. And the reason that I preach to you from notes is because I want to teach you what I have thought carefully about and studied and worked through so that by every effort of my ability, I am not presenting my own perceptions, but presenting to you the truth. I'm not saying that every pastor needs to do that because of my limitations. I do need to use notes. But it means that an elder candidate will strive for accuracy, however that looks, in the way that they present their understanding of Scripture so that they can confidently answer questions that arise in the body. Elders teach and elders preach and elders counsel, not from their own storehouse of virtue, but out of what the Word of God teaches. So for this reason, you must ensure that those whom you vote into this role are capable of carrying such a calling. So now what we've done here is we've reached the middle point. We're at the center of all of these things listed in chapter 3, verses 1. But you'll notice there's a shift because the first seven are speaking of positive virtues, and now we're going to move into a negative list. This is what an elder must not be. An elder must not be a drunkard. Other versions say they must not be given too much wine. Now, it's not a prohibition from drinking any alcoholic beverage. In fact, later on in this same book, Paul is going to encourage Timothy to use wine in a medicinal manner for his stomach ailments. This does not mean that anyone who serves as an elder must not ever have alcohol, but it does mean that they must never practice drunkenness. They must not let alcohol rule their life, even for short bursts at occasional weddings once or twice a year. 
elders, just like all Christians, are to guard against being ruled by anything other than Christ. For some, that looks like abstaining entirely, either because of a lack of self-control that they know of in their own life, or maybe because of a past addiction. For transparency's sake, I will say that I abstain from alcohol. This is not difficult for me because I actually don't like it. But I also seek to be very careful so that I don't become a stumbling block to anyone who might struggle in this area. If you are fighting against the bottle, I want you to know that I am with you in that fight. I am going to strive alongside of you to help you in that fight. This is not to say that every elder of this church must abstain, but it is to say that every elder who would ever be appointed here must be somebody with a healthy relationship to alcohol. The ninth thing that is mentioned is that an elder must not be violent, but gentle. Now, this is a reference to the way that Christians carry themselves toward others. When we use the word violent here, this is not just speaking about physical violence, although I will say that their world was far more physically violent than ours because our, our laws and our police force and the way things function in our society is quite um, overseen much more than theirs would have been in their world in that day. Our culture is typically much less physically violent than the first century, but you can still tell, even in our society today, when somebody wants to punch you in the face, right? You, you know, you, you can hear their voice, you can see their face, you, you can get a sense of the, the tightness of their fists if they want to punch you in the face. Now, they're weighing out, should I do this? Because if I do, I might go to jail. But they, you know if somebody is angry with you. That is part of what is being spoken about here, that we are not to be violent but gentle. Elders are called to physical and to verbal restraint. Elders are not to be brash. They are not to be filled with rage. They are not to be white-knuckled or malicious. They are to deal gently with the sheep of God, even when the sheep of God themselves are frustrating or running away. The tenth thing that we see is that elders must not be quarrelsome. You know those people. Some people just like to cause problems. They like to pick a fight. They like to produce drama wherever they go, and they incite disputes, and they irritate, and they frustrate, and they poke, and they prod until they get a reaction. For obvious reasons, such a person should not become an elder. This kind of a man would lead the church into a place of absolute turmoil. The church should be at peace with one another, and elders should be peacemakers. An elder must be even-handed and measured in the way that they serve, serve the church. I will say this, however, does not mean that elders should be weak. It would be just as dangerous to have a leader in place who has no backbone and who is unable to stand up against false teaching in the camp. Robert Yarborough explains it this way nicely in his commentary. He says, Paul is calling for a magnanimity that rules out quick-tempered mercurial reactions. But he by no means rules out the leadership steel and strategies that may be necessary to fight the good fight of the faith and to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. One of the hardest things to do as an elder is to approach somebody who is in unrepentant sin. To stand there and say to the person, you are dishonoring Christ and I call you to repentance. It takes guts to do that and you need somebody who is able to do that without picking a fight and without being confrontational. An elder also must not be a lover of money. Now, we're going to hit this quite a bit more later in 1 Timothy because he does hammer this quite a bit down the road in chapter 6. So we're not going to cover it extensively now, but allow me to simply remind you what Jesus has to say about money. He says, you can't serve two masters. You will either serve God or you will serve money. 
Now, everybody in this church has money. Everyone in this church needs money to operate in our society. You have to have money to pay the bills. But there are those who seek to use the church for dishonest gain. When somebody is being put forward for a leadership position within the church, you need to consider what that person has done with the wealth that they already have. Have they used it to enrich themselves beyond the scale of those in the body of Christ? Or does it appear as though that person has been faithfully generous to what the Lord has provided? It is very important that we pay attention to those who we are putting in place because if somebody is all about money and enriching themselves, then what will happen when they get into that office is they will continue to do the same. How do you know that? Because let me, let's face it, you're not checking bank statements and we're not going to have anybody look into how much each person in the church is giving. I don't know that. But what we do know is this. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. How often do you hear this person going on and on about money? How often is that their focus of conversation? How often are they worried about their stocks? Or how often are they considering their retirement fund? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Consider those things when you're considering an elder. The twelfth thing is that an elder must manage his household well. The way that a man parents his children is one of the chief indicators of how they're going to care for the body of Christ. If they're not interested in giving of their own giving their own offspring the word of God, how consistently do you think they're going to train the hearts of those within the church to follow Christ? How could they possibly serve as faithful leaders of a congregation and leading them toward the Lord if they can't even do that for someone under their care who is a child? Once a child is grown and outside of the home, they fall outside of this requirement because they are to be in charge of their own household, manage their household. So if somebody grows up, moves away, they are then on their own in their own household, and this requirement no longer applies. The 13th requirement we see is that an elder must not be a recent convert. Now, you know the old saying that power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Elders do not have, uh, elders do have legitimate power. They have power to lead the church. They have authority within the congregation, but A problem arises when an elder stops recognizing that they are just managing somebody else's flock. The word that here is used for recent convert is the word neophyte in Greek. It's the word that's used for a tiny plant that just starts breaking through the soil. So you've done this, and we're getting ready in the near future to plant seeds. And when you plant them, for a while nothing happens, and then all of a sudden, this little tiny stalk starts pushing through the ground. That is what he says is a new Christian, a baby Christian. Don't put a person like that into a position of leadership. And that is not only for the church's good, but he says here that's for their own good. Because if you do so, you're going to put them in danger of experiencing the same condemnation that Satan received for the way that he went beyond the authority of his station. The power corrupted, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. The 14th thing that I would say here is the last qualification, that an elder must be thought of well by outsiders, speaking of those outside of the church. Anybody, I mean just about anybody, can walk into a room like this one and be nice for a couple of hours. Anybody in the world, pretty much, can come into a place like this and pretend to be a kind person for two hours. The requirement of elders is that they would not just act like that here, but they would walk out into the world and do the same there. Hypocrites and actors go back into the world and they act like the world all week long. 
This requirement presupposes that you actually know about these men's lives outside of your experience with them in this building. It presupposes that you have a sense of how these people love their neighbors and how they care for those that they work with. It does not mean that you're going to shadow them at their jobs and take notes. Like your boss is like, who is that guy? Well, that's Jonathan Rodriguez. He's, uh, he, he's interested in whether or not I'm going to be a good elder, so he's just watching me for the day. Don't worry about him. He's just a shadow today. Don't, don't worry about him. He'll be, he'll, be, he'll be quiet. It does mean that you're going to listen to how they speak. Listen to how they talk about their coworkers. Listen to how they offer of themselves in seemingly small ways. Like when they say something like, yeah, my back is kind of sore because, you know, my, I was working yesterday on snow plowing and my neighbor just, he, he has a snow plow, but it wasn't working. So I did his driveway and then the next lady down the street, she asked if I could do it too. And so I, you know, I'm just tired. I'm worn out. Why? Because he was serving. And it's not a way to brag, but just pay attention to the ways that these people give of themselves. It's very important that we understand that outsiders think well of them, but because we live in a large society, it's difficult usually to know how this person's neighbors are going to think about them by talking to their neighbors. So you need to listen carefully how this person is intentionally relating to the world so that you can see whether or not you believe this person relates well to outsiders. Elders need to exemplify all of these things that we've just listed, but if you pay close attention, several of the last things are categorized here as traps set for them by the devil. Most commentators believe that everything from number 8 through number 14, that whole second half of the list, are traps set by the devil for those who are going to fall into them. It says the elders must exemplify these things so that they themselves are not disgraced and so that they will not fall sway to these traps. Two final words of encouragement and we'll close. First, as of this moment, I am officially nominating Mike Neglia and Steve Schultz as elder candidates. And we're going to be voting as a church to approve them on April 3rd of this year, directly after our church service. And I will say that I am confident that these men exemplify the character qualities qualities and gifting that I spoke about today. But don't take my word for it. If you have not already, get to know them and examine them so that you can faithfully care for this church by appointing the right leaders. The second thing that I would mention is that I realize this sermon has been way more of a teaching than a preaching opportunity. I've been asking you to look into the lives of men and hold them particular to particular standards in order to serve as elders, but allow me now to simply close by preaching for a moment. Allow me to remind you that our chief example in every one of these areas is our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only one who has ever lived above reproach. To the fullest extent of what that means, not even God the Father could find fault in him. Though he was never married, Jesus was pure in his heart and conduct towards women. He was sober-minded even when encountering the most extreme temptations in history. He was self-controlled, never turning the good gifts of God into a way to sin. He was the chiefly respectable human who ever walked the face of the earth. And not only was he hospitable, he continues to be hospitable as he has gone to prepare a place for us with the Father. He was not only able to teach, but he is the one who, John 1 says, exegetes the Father to us. He is the greatest teacher who has ever walked the face of the earth. He had a proper relationship with alcohol. He was not a lover of money. He was not quarrelsome, he was gentle, and he was lowly. And this Jesus, the rightful ruler of all, was crucified for sinful men. Why? 
so that he might raise us up, so that he might save us to the uttermost, so that he might bring to life those who don't meet any of these descriptions, so that he might cause those who have rebelled and fallen short in all of these categories to be his own children. If you don't know this Jesus, I would ask that you come speak to me. I'd love nothing more than to share with you more about him today. And if you do know him, as we look at this list, I pray that you would be encouraged that Jesus Christ, the true shepherd of the sheep, is worthy to lead. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for this time we've had in the Word, and I ask, Lord, that we would put into practice these things here at Gateway, and that we would live them out, and we would pursue obedience so that we might have leaders in this church that reflect Jesus Christ well. In his name that we pray, amen.